welcome to series four of the Poolside Pass podcast. Over the next eight weeks that take us up to the Olympic Games, I'm going to bring in new discussions on talent development and identification, uh, technical differences across all four strokes, and coaching journeys. This week, I'm joined by Kevin Pickard from the Rogue Monkey podcast, and we're going to be discussing talent development and identification and where we think this might be moving in the future. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to share it with other people in your network, make sure you do so, but make sure you include us in on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Poolside Pass. Like I say, if you like the show, make sure you're subscribing and sharing within your own coaching network. Uh, but otherwise, uh, just enjoy the discussion. Okay, so I think it's about time I introduce Kevin to the podcast. Kevin Picard, welcome. How are you getting on? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good to see you, Jamie. Are you keeping well? Yes. Yeah, good, thanks. For those that, for those that aren't listening, Kevin is the uh, the brains behind uh, the Rogue Monkey podcast. Um, he's got you know, he's got he's got a background within within sport and he's got a bit of a, a passion for talent development. Kevin, do you want to just give us a little bit on, on that background? Yeah, it from a work point of view as the sport swimming. I guess my sporting journey goes way back, like many of us, to when I was an athlete. Did that for many years and ended up in teaching and coaching. Uh, moved for a number of roles and ended up in talent development for quite a few years and currently work as a sports consultant, uh, actually across a number of sports, but mainly in swimming side of things, I guess, doing some stuff with Olympic champion Adam Peaty and some of his projects around the race clinics and AP+. Great. So in terms of today's main topic, uh, we're going to be speaking about talent um talent development talent identification it's somewhat of a, a more kind of philosophical uh topic for, for today's episode rather than some of the more technical natured ones that i've done in the past let's start by just having a little dig into to what is talent Kev, how would you how would you define talent I think there's a few things. I know you've probably got a, a dictionary definition prepared for me, but you know, for me, first thing to mention, I guess, is it's contextual um, and it's not a single thing. And I think we can try and boil it down to a single thing. We can call it an X factor or whatever you like, but for me, it's not a single thing. Some people have genetic predispositions to certain abilities, and I don't personally believe they're sport specific. Um, I think environment plays such a huge factor in talent development, again, in however you define that. And for me, the the early aspect of someone's journey plays a huge part in honing talent. And again, not in the way you might think. It's it's all about traits and behaviours for me. So when you actually dig down into somebody, you know, you hear a coach say, oh, that kid's super talented. Well, actually, often they mean they listen, they learn really quickly, they take on board information. Uh, they've got, you know, you know, if they're on a tennis court, they've got great hand-eye coordination. If they're on in a swimming pool, they've got great awareness of where their body is, you know. So they're not necessarily pre predefined factors for swimming or for any other sport or for any other business. But actually, for me, it's a collection of factors that give them an opportunity to excel in whatever arena those skills happen to be pretty useful in. And I think they are quite transferable. You know, it's when you dig back into a lot of people's careers and the highly successful people, sport and some level of um, traits development forms a part of their journey. So for me, that's, um, that's I guess, if I was trying to boil it down to maybe a single sentence, it's a, it's a collection of traits and behaviours that allow someone to excel in their arena. So you mentioned uh, it being a collection of traits and behaviours, which 
potentially links more to kind of the personality side of of what talent is when you when you look into it to a dictionary it, it throws out uh four words uh natural aptitude or skill um which for me is is a little bit not confusing but a little bit almost contradictory right because they're saying like a natural aptitude or skill right and for me i've always been taught that skill can always be developed skill can always be learned so to have a dictionary definition saying natural skill uh, doesn't quite make much sense so so we'll stick with uh, the, the collection of of traits and and behaviors because i think you know that's more where we're going to going to delve into into today um in terms of talent as an umbrella and and as a, a quite a general discussion that is that i've had a number of times with, with people around talent is the whole nature versus nurture debate um yes let's dig into that a little bit i think there's a couple of things again some of that comes back to environment um and we can talk about training environment but certainly in the early years i talk about their human environment you know what teachers they had around them when they were at school what their friendship circles were like what their family support circle was like and i think when we talk about nurture and nature i think some people may have a predisposition to learning but if they had a coach that says oh you never need to read anything for example then they're probably not going to take their reading in books or whatever it is quite as seriously so I think again there is a massive overlap and I also think especially when kids go through puberty somebody who's not deemed as talented by whatever metric people use to define talent they can often just emerge so and you know I'm, I'm biased because I come from the world of swimming but you know, if we if we said that every kid that makes a regional or district or, you know, depending on what country you're listening to this in uh, as a competition standard, you know, at the age of 14, Adam Peaty wouldn't have been deemed talented enough because he didn't qualify. So I think it's it's important for us to understand that, that it's not black and white. It doesn't, you know, environmental over here and, you know, this kind of what you've got, you're genetically gifted with over here. There's a massive overlap and there's a huge amount of research at the moment coming out around environmental impact on genetics. So actually you can be predispositioned to something, but actually your environment unlocks that genetic potential. And I think that's really important, especially for young athletes to get across that just because they haven't realized their, their dreams and ambitions at the age of 12 or whatever it is, you know, as an age group athlete, that actually the best does lay ahead of them. And that may be, may be in areas that actually they can't anticipate right now. Um, did some or doing some interviews, I should say at the moment for some research I'm doing for my masters. And I interviewed uh, an international swimmer quite recently who spoke when he first broke onto what I'd consider the performance swimming scene, you know, national level, he was a breaststroker and he ended up going to Olympic games on distance freestyle. So I think again, looking back, it's very easy to go nature or nurture. And I think it's it's not, it's a Venn diagram. There's this beautiful overlapping image and somewhere in the middle is this gray area that we all get lost in. I think sometimes people like to use the argument of like to, to kind of pigeonhole you into say, saying one thing. People like to say something like, yeah, but for all things being equal on the, on the gene side, it must be, it must be the nurture that sets you apart. But, but really you can flip that argument round on its head and you can say, well, all things being equal in terms of the environment, it will be the genes that set you apart. So that, that whole kind of all things being equal debate doesn't really, uh, you know, doesn't really do the, do the topic any justice, right? 
I think as well, you know, it's <clears throat> we take too many um, very niche examples and applied those um, constraints across the board. And I know I think you mentioned we want to talk a little bit later about the 10,000 hour rule. But for me, you know, it is completely context driven because if a, if a youngster happens to have an opportunity in front of them and they happen to be at the right age at the right time, then that doesn't mean they're more or less talented than somebody who came two years before them or two years after them. It just means, you know, the, the different aspects of their talent development pathway have come together at the right time. And I think there is an element of luck to that. But I think there also is an element of patience to that because, you know, we're in a generation now where actually it's super quick. Everyone wants everything yesterday, you know, and there is no shortcut to hard work. And I think the 10,000 hour rule when you start to dig into some of the wider studies based around that you know there's no no one's arguing that you don't get to performance levels in sport you know by sheer chance there is you know some certain factors that need to come together but I think it's the very rigid way that we see that that can be probably the bit I struggle with the most because ultimately we're dealing with people you know there's what seven billion people on earth and not a single person's identical and even when you look at identical twin studies they still show individual personality traits that contribute to their own path so i think it's just having that open-mindedness to actually understand that this isn't the way it's a way and i think as long as people kind of fall back on that that there's always different ways of doing things there's always a new route you can learn from and develop from then i think you're going to have a much more successful but also um enjoyable journey you know because at the end of the day if you're doing something that is constantly not getting results but you get one through the door and it works and you go well this is the way of doing it you're still going to have like nine out of ten bad experiences along the way and i don't know about you but it doesn't matter what journey i'm taking people on whether they're the next olympic champion or whether they just want to participate and have fun you want to get the best out of them and get have a, have a good time along the way i think um Complete, completely agree with that. I think, you know, we, we've spoken a few times about this topic and we've, we've spoken about the notion of, you know, you might have, you might in, in a set period of time, you might coach 100, 100 athletes um, and out of those 100, you might get one fantastic athlete that, that will go and, and represent their country at a sport or something like that. But in terms of a, a system, in terms of trying to find that one, uh, are you are you are we are we disregarding 99 or potentially ruining 99 people's dreams so that one person can can realize their dream or you know is 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 that how as a pathway in terms of you know is that is that how we're working uh, i'm not sure i do think as well like it's Again, it comes back to this. We live in quite a black and white world. And yes, there are set areas that are perhaps more set up for performance and others that are set up for participation. And I'm not in any way implying everyone should be a jack of all trades. But actually, there is different ways of doing things. And just because you're developing performance athletes as part of your program, that doesn't mean you have to disregard everyone who's not performance or has got performance ambitions. And ultimately, if you talk to very successful athletes in a number of sports, you'll hear this notion of team and the journey and their friends and the experiences along the way. So surely it makes sense if we know that combines to form part of a successful journey, are we not fostering an enjoyable, a positive environment where everyone feels like they're on the journey so that if, even if it's a thousand or a hundred thousand swimmers across your career, when that one person makes it to the highest levels in the sport, well, everyone else can actually go, well, we all kind of played a part in that, you know, we were there on the days when they were struggling when they were a kid. 
you know, or, or whatever it is. And I think that it might sound quite idealistic, but I've seen programs do it. And it frustrates me that you get quite single minded places that say, if you're not coming here to do this, you're out. And it's kind of like, well, okay, maybe not in your one group, but actually within your, your club, if you've got a big enough club or your network of clubs, actually there's still a place for that person in the sport. Um, and I think that's something that generally not just swimming, a lot of sports fail at is actually they, they're very much rigid in their ways. Everyone has to fit a certain box, if you like. And if they don't fit their box, they're asked to leave. And then in 20 years time, we can't understand why we've got an obesity epidemic. We've got people that aren't interested in physical activity. And we're like, well, because they had a poor experience when they were a kid, which has had such an impact on their life that they're not interested in sport. Um, and I think we've got a responsibility to every single person that walks through the door, whether it's going to change their life from the career they end up going on, whether they become a performance athlete, which is a select few, or whether they just go on and become a better person because of the kind of traits that we've we've demonstrated to them as what being a good person is all about. So I think, it, yeah, it comes back to this kind of muddy picture kind of thing. But then even if you look at the best, and I'm diving away from swimming here, but you take Lionel Messi, who, you know, it's poetry in motion to watch him play football. You know, he was one of his most famous quotes. He said, I became an overnight success in 17 years. And is people see the outcome and don't actually see that it might have just been their one friend that gave them a lift to training one day because their parents car broke down. But they were part of that journey. And I think it's really important that we get better at recognizing that as a sport uh, at all levels, that actually everyone has a part to play. And I think the better we get at that, the more enjoyable it will become for everybody instead of just a very select few. Brilliant. Brilliant. Let's talk a little bit now about in society, in today's world, who gets classed as talented? Now, for me, when I think of, of people who are either, you know, held up as an example in, in front of in front of the world as being exceptionally talented, or people who are who I just believe are exceptionally talented at something. Usually they're either really fast at doing something, really strong, or exceptionally skillful at, at doing something. Now, for me, people that are really fast uh, at doing something on a, on a physiological level uh, will, will possess a certain like gene for certain types of muscle fibers, et cetera, et cetera. Those that are, that are exceptionally strong, again, will have some kind of gene within within their dna somewhere which which enables them to respond quicker and to produce uh, greater greater muscle mass and again those that are particularly skillful at, at something um when we're thinking maybe like a cricket uh bowling the cricket ball or, or something like that you know they're gonna their neurons within their brains which you know transfer the electrical signals around for the execution of a movement those neurons are going to be more heavily myelinated and better insulated to, to transfer those, those signals around. And again, there'll be a gene somewhere which codes for better myelination of, of the neuron. In terms of the fast, the strong and the skillful, where do you think as a talent, in terms of talent identification, where do you think we're best off looking for, for talent? I think I uh, did an interview recently with a lady called Kath Bishop who talks about a long win. Uh, fascinating lady. If no one's come across her, definitely check out her book. And she went to three Olympics, ended up meddling at the third one, but had her best experience as a journey in the last quad leading up to it. And a lot of that came down to actually describing what is the win we're looking for. And I think the frustrating thing is that 
the talent system and let's speak specifically in swimming and we can obviously only speak from our our country from where we're from is the on paper the objective is to develop future international senior medalists so if that's the objective age group performance should not be the measure we're looking at uh, but and i think it's very important i state this there has to be a balance in how we view that because i find it extremely frustrating but i, I also and i've had pointed out to me many times that from a legal perspective if you say the fastest 12, 13, 14 year old, there's no arguments as in there's no subjectivity. So, and in the world, sadly, that we found ourselves in now, if you picked because you had a good eye for coaching, the kid who came 12th and you went, I can't quite put my finger on it, but that kid's got all the right attributes, whatever it is we describe as the ones they need. And then the person who comes third, who doesn't get selected, starts a legal challenge. And that's sadly how talent development, certainly at the the age group level seems to be done it's done how can it be as watertight as possible so there's no legal challenge now if we look at it on the flip side how do we describe what makes up somebody who goes on to become an international senior medalist primarily an olympic champion which is what you know the funding is generally based around olympic medals well actually it's a lot around behaviors so we're assessing age groups based or younger athletes based on performance, current performance, but we know the actual metrics that are going to allow them to become successful when they're older usually form around behaviors. And that's a harder thing to measure. It's a much harder thing. And I'm not in any way saying that it's an easy thing, but I think when we talk about what talent is, again, it comes back to what do we have as our metrics to start with? Because you'll have people who say to me, like in the years when I did my previous job, how, how what would you look for? And I said, I'd sit in the gallery and I'd watch how they walked up behind a block. I'd walk, uh, when they touched the wall, did they say well done to the person next to them? Did they get out and stomp off or did they go and speak to their coach for feedback? Did they go and swim down? Did their parents lose their minds because the kid came first or last or whatever it is? And you start to get a picture of some of, I guess, the pieces of the recipe that are going to allow that athlete to be successful. Um, you know, one of the girls, Lauren, that I worked with on AP Plus, she had some really tough experiences as an international junior athlete. And she's quite open about it. She said, you know, my parents did not in, in all ways support me the best way they could, because actually there wasn't that knowledge out there of what best practice looked like. And actually, I then think, well, if we know there's so many different factors that influence talent when it's a younger nurturing part of their journey, and yet we're assessing talent on one single very arbitrary thing. Usually, if you line up all the 12-year-olds and go, which one's the most talented? Well, by our metrics of being the fastest, strongest, whatever it is, it's going to be the tall, early developer kid. And actually, I'm kind of like, well, our entire talent system is built to find the Olympic champion on paper. And the current Olympic champion wouldn't fall under the metrics we use for 12, 13 or 14-year-olds because they weren't talented enough by our own definition. And I find that quite challenging to get my head around. So a lot of the stuff I certainly do now going forwards is talking a lot more holistically and actually working with coaches to say, what are you actually trying to achieve? And if it's somebody who's still in the sport when they're in their 20s, you know, a good person, somebody that's a well-balanced athlete, it's like, well, that's how you define what, the way your program operates. If you want to slog up and down and pop out one every hundred kids and everyone else, we're not worried about them. That's fine. But I think in a modern day sport, that's quite hard sell. And I'd question as a coach whether you're in it for the right reasons, if that's how you choose to run your program. So, again, quite a long winded answer there. But I think when we talk about talent, it's a very muddy picture, which we then try and put into a black and white world, which it just isn't. I think I think people like it. People like in any kind of discussion or any question, people want a straightforward 
answer yes this is talent no that is not talent this is what talent is x y and z and really when when you're dealing what you've got to remember is with with talent and with sport and with coaching in general is we are dealing with individuals and we are dealing with human beings right and everyone is different everyone is you know got their own like individual differences and, and, and differences about them so so when when we're trying to fit things into a, a predetermined idea of what something is uh you know seldom is anyone going to fit exactly in exactly into that mold right yeah and i think also we've got to look at it, it, it again comes back to a paradox because a talent development system is designed to develop the future potential into realized potential Whereas actually, if you look at, you take Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, as a prime example, outliers by their very definition do not follow a traditional pathway. Therefore, by creating a traditional path, you're completely going against the kind of people you're trying to find. And I think, you know, I've had this discussion with a number of people and quite robustly a few times where people say to me, well, yeah, but that might only be one in 10 or one in 20 of our international athletes. And I go, well, I'll tell you what, the next time you let an Olympic champion slip through the net, you go and explain to your bosses why it's okay that that happened. And I think how many, you know, if you take again, Adam as an example, statistically, we shouldn't have him. Statistically, a kid that didn't come through until they were in their mid-teens just so happened to be in a program by somebody who'd been to an Olympics and had an eye for what they were looking for. The odds of those things happening, if either of those two had been at clubs east or west, 50 miles and had never come across each other statistically that teenage boy would have got bored and dropped out and we wouldn't have him and you get people who go backwards and forwards and say you know i agree i don't agree and that's fine but i think ultimately our system generates success on the masses in spite of the system and not because of it you know if you look at the numbers of kids that are picked out of the hat at 12 that are still in the sport let alone performance levels at the age of say 25 when we know our seniors are at their absolute best then you know it's quite a small number so i think a lot less rigidity needs to appear within the system and actually get back to a point where our metrics for a younger cohort of athletes and their coaches and their parents are around this long-term view because you're not going to find a parent who has a kid in the sport at 10 who says i don't want my kid to become a good person because they just wouldn't and actually if you can then hone those traits at 11 12 13 the kind of time where you need to be honing those behaviors because by the time you're 20 if you're not motivated chances are it's not going to suddenly click into life then actually that's an opportunity lost so i think if we start saying to parents our success is getting kids to 18 and still enjoying the sport by very definition our pool of 18 year olds is going to get bigger and bigger which then means our talent pool at that age is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger but i think too often it just feels like a race to a finish line under the age of 18 and that is far too often it almost feels like the kiss of death and i remember i think it was phelps's book his coach talked about the fact that it was a blessing that he never made an age group nationals uh, he did come through quite quickly when he did come through but actually, you know, he said his coach said something to the effect of I'm glad he never won a national junior championship, because if he had the chances are he wouldn't have gone on because it seems to be like a cliff dive. Um, and from my own experiences on athletes I've coached, the ones that fly high early really struggle to maintain it because there's all this pressure you've got, especially in the world of social media. They think they're the next big thing. You get their parents telling them that they get the coaches telling them that they get the system telling them that. And then the next year they don't grow as much. 
or they have GCSEs to do or whatever it is. And suddenly they take a step backwards and the world falls apart and they go, oh, I'm done with swimming. See you later. And that's where I think, how many kids do we lose going through that? And again, it's quite a colourful discussion when I have it with people. It's important to remember as well, it's not just not just our sport that this happens in, right? I, you know, I, I couldn't name you a single sport where the talent identification system is not based on performance at a young age, right? Because like you say, it's it's probably the safest way to do it in terms of trying to look after your own almost reputation as a, as a sport and organization. And, you know, no one's saying that that's the wrong thing to do in terms of making sure that there's no legal challenges and making sure that, you know, people can't really argue with the, with the selection because that, that's really important as well. Right. But I think, and we're going to move on to this now, as a result of that, you end up with a bit of a, a big of a big squeeze, right. In terms of trying to squeeze people out as, uh, as they go up. Right. Um, Three questions for you here, and I'm going to roll them into one. In terms of any talent identification, uh, typically, do we write people off too early? Do we always allow for late developers? And do we look after the early developers? We just touched on it a minute ago. Hopefully, we can, we can delve into a bit more detail here. Um, so do we write people off too early? Um, tough question because, you know, our sport isn't traditionally professional by the masters. No. So in, in, in my mind, we don't even recognize them. You know, you go, oh, he's qualified for regionals. Great job. And it's like, well, hold on. We know that some people have gone from that to great things relatively quickly. So let's let's keep the door open. So I think for me, it's not so much writing people off. For me, it's keeping as many doors open for as long as possible. You know, and yeah, again, it's, relatively singular example but you take alice thomas you know just made the olympics for the first time at the age of 30 now how many times has she had a door shut in her face for the last 12 years to be told mm, you're probably too too old you can't do it and she's gone no i'm not stopping i'm going to keep pushing and i think you know we shouldn't be closing doors on athletes and whether and i'm not talking about funding and all those sorts of, i'm just talking about general opportunities and the that because you're sorry and if you look at the average age at the olympics it's going up and up and up and up and up certainly in our sport it's kind of like well maybe we should start opening doors a bit later for people and um, around early and date developers i guess it comes back to me what i was talking about earlier that everyone's on their own journey so i think we're under a huge amount of pressure more than we've ever been certainly post-covid funding massively pressured whether you're at a club level or a in you know world-class funding level i think we've got challenges with parents especially with the social media generation where oh i saw ryan lochte's doing this so why isn't my eight-year-old doing it well kind of different contexts so i think that there's huge pressures for anyone on the performance spectrum whether they're an early developer traditional developer or a late developer it kind of comes back to me is actually there isn't a set model and we've got great examples of early developers. If you take someone like Rebecca Adlington, who followed the traditional path pretty well, went through the different age bands, got better and better, and eventually popped out as an Olympic champion. But then on the flip side of that, you get someone like Ben Proud, who was nowhere at 16, dropped up at nationals at 17, and at 18, jumped straight onto world-class funding. You know, Now, again, statistically, those kind of kids are put off because they're not good enough at a young age. So I think that the most important thing for me is making sure, number one, that we treat it as an individual journey and not just an athletic journey, but a human journey. Just because an athlete's got huge personal tragedies or whatever it is in their life at 12, 13, 14, and they miss a year of swimming, doesn't mean that their career in sport is over. I think it was an interview at the ISL with Caleb Dressel. 
who said his parents said to him when he was like 14 or 15, I just want to take off a year off swimming and go and play football or whatever sport it was. And they were like, yeah, sure, go go do that. And look where he is now. And I, I, I kind of questioned that. And I've got quite a personal affiliation to Caleb's story because in 2000, and I want to say 13, I uh, was fortunate enough to be working as an assistant at a club that had an athlete on the World Junior team. And t- four by 200 relay in Britain broke the world record and won gold that year. In the silver medal position, so not the winners, was the Australians. I believe it was the Australians that were second. And in that team, including Mac Horton. And in the bronze medal team, included Caleb Dressel. So, and again, quite singular examples. But I think if we go on our sole metrics of winning being best for a development pathway, I'd go, "Mm, I'm pretty sure Caleb's going to do quite well this summer. And actually, if we measure his success at an age group level based on winning, actually, maybe he wouldn't have been selected. So, yeah, I I think it's, again, it's quite a muddy picture. But in terms of early and late developers, we've just got to keep doors open. And especially for the early ones that come through, the big, strong kids, it's it's managing all the other stuff that comes with it, saying no to things, holding them back a little bit, understanding that it's not a race to the finish line at 14 or 15, because if they drop off the cliff at 17, then we're not going to have them as a senior athlete. So, yeah, quite a blurred answer again, but. It's, uh, it's just not a black and white picture for me. And I guess that's where my frustrations come when people try and box it into a rigid, this is what it is. And I'm like, it is for some people, but not everybody. In terms of what you just said there, in terms of like you said, saying no to things, uh, some of those more earlier developers, give, give us an example of what that might look like. <clears throat> I'll give you a great example, only because it comes from your neck of the woods. So 12 years old, I was coaching at a club in Hertfordshire and I had a, a club near you Dunstable knock on the door and say hey we've got this kid he's pretty big we think we he's kind of outgrown the club physically and training wise you know what can you offer so we came across and did some stuff and I'm just for context I'm six foot four uh, and he walked in the door and I had to look up to him and was like well this kid's pretty big um and I remember England talent knocking on the door I I mean it was a while ago now I want to say 13 14 and we said no way he's not ready you know, he's still doing basic drills and skills and learning how to streamline properly because he's grown so much and looking after injury prevention, all those sorts of things. Calm down. We've just got to keep him in the door because he's getting all this pressure of being the next big thing because he was huge. But actually, it was around looking after his long longevity. He's still in the National Centre. And that was where are we now 2021. And I think I was coaching him 2013, 14. So for me, the success isn't the fact that we did or didn't get him to a national championship when he was 13. It was actually that he's still involved in the sport in his 20s. And then at 20, the other people, the performance elite people, they can do their job. But I think if we don't get them to that door in the first place, then it doesn't matter how good they perform at a young age, they're lost. So I think the example that I used there, I, you know, I've lived it very real. And you know, I remember the head coach at the club I was working at quite overtly saying no. And I was like, well, that's, that's, you know, it's hard to do because your ego and all those sorts of things, but it's the right thing to do. And I think that's a real challenge in the modern world where we all like having a bit of recognition and a bit of front. But, you know, I still have a conversation with him when I see him on poolside now, that swimmer. And I think we've done a good job with you. You know, we've looked after your interests as a human and not chased your results when we, you were an age group swimmer. So I think for me, that was the example I'd use. Fantastic. That's a brilliant example. Um, and that kind of, almost draws us to, to to nearly an end of the kind of philosophical debate on, you know, what we perceive as talent, how we identify talent. We're going to delve a little bit now into 
you know, how we develop talent, the more kind of, you know, the, the I'd say the, the customer facing part of part of the job as a coach and actually, you know, developing people and making people better at, at what they love. Um, I heard, I heard on, uh, on a podcast somewhere once uh, and, you know, I cannot reference it. It's just in my brain somewhere. Um, the phrase, a bag full of seeds still needs to be grown. So, you know, no matter everything we've just discussed in terms of the pre, what they're predisposed to, their traits, their behaviours, you know, their environment, everything, no matter how talented an individual may be, you know, they've still got to be developed. They've still got to be, you know, made better on from that point um and i think that that whole phrase of a bag full of seeds still needs to be grown it just makes makes a lot of sense to me what would in that i think that lends itself a lot to in terms of environmental factors right you might have a super talented individual but in the wrong environment you know it's it's, it's not going to flourish let's let's talk a little bit a little bit about that now so I think um, what we're getting back there, I guess, is to, you know, if we take the plant metaphor is, you know, what does the soil look like? And I think it looks different for different people because some people are born into different environments. And and again, it, it applying a blanket rule for a single parent living in a, a flat in London trying to support their kid versus a very... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? A very balanced home life where you both your parents are together. You've got a good stable income. You happen to have a local pool that's really, really got a really good, got a performance program in. Applying the same thing to everybody for me, again, doesn't work. So I think when it comes to actually the environment, I think it's important, one, to understand the range of environments. Because certainly in my last job, you know, I was supporting about 350 coaches and they would take offense to the fact I would say everyone should do it the way the performance coaches do it or on the flip side everyone should do it the way that the community coaches do it so i think it's the first thing i would say is that when you're talking about environment again it's not a one-size-fits-all second thing is to make sure that you understand it and i think that's really really important because that actually then starts to build relationships because certainly in the role i was doing i wasn't the one developing the athletes it was the coaches so actually, you need to understand what the coaches are doing, how you can help them as individuals and especially them as people, because actually they might just want to ring up and have 20 minutes on the phone. They've really struggled with a few things that week. But actually, because they've had that conversation, they then go on poolside and coach better. And I think coach welfare as a prime example, when we talk about environment, is something that we do horrendously in this country. And it's not just in swimming, it's across all sports. You know, the, certainly if you're in COVID, that was exposed hugely. So I think. Yeah, those are the kind. Of my, my, I guess my thoughts around environment. It's so individualised that an understanding of what the human needs, and not just the swimmer, but then also their environment around them. Do their parent or parents need specific support? Do their coaches need support? And also, are we treating them as just those things in isolation, or are we having conversations between all of them, where actually parents are hearing what we're saying to the coaches, coaches are hearing what we're saying to the parents, so that we're all singing off the same sheet? Because the volume of times I do parent talks. I've been doing quite a few during lockdown at clubs and I'll say something and I'll get an email the next day from a parent going, I'd never been told that before. And I think, really? But then I'm like, well, why would you? You don't get a welcome to swimming when you first start, whether it's 8, 14, 
16, you know, and you, your kid goes into a program, you don't get this nice pretty book that explains all these things that you and me have had the fortune of experiencing. And that's kind of where the whole AP plus thing, because I said, you know, when I was talking with the team last year around developing that, actually, there isn't a syllabus for actually just developing good young swimmers. We talk about performance swimmers, but we don't just talk about good swimmers. And I mean good as in their whole development as a human being. You know, so some of the stuff we've done on that looks at their nutrition, but in a much more practical way, looks at their psychology, both for them and as parents. And actually, I think, it, again, it's it's being quite open minded as you as to how you I think what you just said there about, you know, developing good young swimmers or just good, good swimmers rather than a performance swimmer or this or that or that. I think that's, that's, that's really important. I think, you know, if, you, if you're in a club where you've got, you know, you might have <coughs> a performance strand new club you might have uh, a less serious more kind of just a sink like competitive strand new club and then you might have kind of a more kind of leisurely strand new club as well so for example you know you might just have two of those you might have one of those whatever it doesn't matter what strand someone's in you still want you still want them to be a good swimmer you still want them to be a good individual and it's then their their commitment to the sport and their ambitions within the sport which determines what strand they go into not are they a good swimmer or not? Oh, yeah, they're good swimmer. We'll put them in the performance section. No, they should all be good swimmers. It's their ambition and their commitment to the sport which should decide what strand of the, the club they go into, right? And we don't understand where those strands go to. And I don't mean understanding in a, in a condescending way. We just don't know where that kid's going to end up. And actually, I, I did a talk, probably I've lost all track of time now with COVID two years ago, I think. And no, it was, it was last year now, I think, January, February time last year. And I, I did a talk around um, a teenage athlete who was a pain in the backside, who effectively the coach was like, look, they're a good person. They're not quite what I wanted for a performance from them, but actually they had some good traits. We got them in the program. We worked with them and they went through. And that guy went on to become a US president and launched the program to the moon. And I was kind of like, for me, I mean, okay, extreme example, but actually, yes, statistically, in the 10,000 kids that sat in my area, there may be two that go to an Olympics, but there's going to be 10,000 of them that go on and become people in society. So actually, it's then saying, well, what, they, what would I want if I had kids? Who would I want teaching them? Do I want somebody who's been brought up in the environment of where team is important and being honest and being hardworking, et cetera, et cetera? Or do I want someone who's completely turned off to the idea of sport because I was an obnoxious coach who couldn't see beyond winning the county championships or whatever it was and I wasn't good enough therefore I completely lost interest in sport and then I kind of went off on a bit of a tangent and that was something I learned certainly before I even moved to university when I was 21 you know my coach was all about keeping people good and actually sport is a vehicle to do that and evident you know I still see him now you know every three four months we have a catch up on the phone or we we'll go out for a beer or whatever it is because he's somebody who's had the right influence on me and I think when we talk about coaches and swimmers, it's actually then saying, be that person, be the person you would want if you were in that situation. Whether you're going to go to an Olympics or whether you're going to go on and become a teacher, a policeman, a doctor, a nurse, whatever job it is you end up doing, you're still going to have a massive impact on their life. And again, we don't recognize coaches that do that well and actually go, yeah, they may not have developed the next Olympic champion, but actually the 100 people a year come out of their program at youth level and all go off to do whatever they're going to do in life. And they're doing a great job. Well done. 
and we don't do that well enough. Cool. So just to just to finish up then, I say just to finish up, we might spend a little bit of time on this on this little bit of the topic. Because I know it's something that you know you're quite interested in. The the ten thousand hours rule and the the whole debate around that and the the idea that you know it takes ten thousand hours of purposeful practice in a in a certain area, a uh, certain sport to then become you know world class at it. Shall, shall we say? What are your thoughts around that? Because you know that links into into talent development, I guess. Well, let's let's flip it a little bit because there's a wonderful quote that floats around in coaching circles that says, "Are you doing the same thing for thirty years, or are you doing something that gets better every year for thirty years?" I.e., you just go on repeat because you're quite closed-minded in your approach. You know, obviously, as a coach, we're always trying to develop and learn and try new ideas and seek other ways of learning. So actually, it's then saying, well, why doesn't that rule apply to young athletes? If you've got a kid that comes in the door and does 10 100 trunk crawl off two minutes and does the same thing for 10 years, do we expect if they tick their 10,000 hour box that they're suddenly going to become out the other end as a great athlete? Probably not. So actually, again, it becomes much more blurred. But you've got to think of it as like a spider diagram. It's not just two parts of the spider diagram. You've got this part that talks about deliberate practice. You've got the point about genetics, which we discussed earlier, your environment parents school teammates are you fortunate enough to grow up in an area where it just so happens that there is training facilities within a half bad drive are you fortunate enough to have parents who've got jobs that allow a enough income for you to do your sport but b enough flexibility that they can get you to your sport when you need to be there and then have enough money on the weekends to say oh your brother's going to cricket in this part of the country but you're going to swimming over here what are we going to do so i think again ten thousand hours it's a it's a number you know, at the end of the day, some people follow it to the letter, some people don't. But for me, it, it comes back to the components of those 10,000 hours. And I would be pretty confident that if you gave me a young athlete on zero, if I focused on a good balanced approach to their development, I could get results in under 10,000 hours. And I think there's other athletes that might take 20,000 hours. So it's it's a number. It's again, it's this arbitrary thing that's saying 10,000 hours. You know, if somebody rocks up at the Olympic Games on 6,000 hours and win gold, are we going to take the gold away and go, no, you haven't ticked the 10,000 hour box? And on the flip side of it, if somebody gets to 10,000 hours and they're still two years away from the Olympic Games, but their trajectory is looking good, are we going to go, well, they've done 10,000 hours? Why haven't they succeeded? You know, it's a number and it's a factor. But actually, what we're talking about there is hours invested in and then all of the different inputs. And I think working smart on those different aspects much more holistically can give you much and I don't mean quicker returns as in we're trying to develop people quicker but it can give you a much stronger footing and you know I talk to a lot of athletes that have perhaps retired now from the last generation and you'll hear them talk a lot around yeah it was great you know we worked hard and we did this and we did that but you know lifestyle support wasn't a thing post-career management wasn't a thing media training wasn't really a thing you know all those sorts of things and you think Well, now kids have got exposure to media from, what, 10, whenever they get a smartphone now. So actually, we can be talking about those sorts of things at a much younger age so that when they're 18, they already understand that if they break the world record, it's probably not a good idea to post on their Instagram that they hate the local football team because it's probably going to generate some negative press for them. You know, and I think those sorts of things, although not specific to talent development, the person standing behind the block isn't an athlete. They're a human being. So actually, we have to support all aspects of the human being if we're going to get the best out of them. And I think if you can find different ways of doing that, depending on your environment, you're going to have much more success at all levels of the sport. Perfect. That's a really, 
just for me, like 10,000 hours, I just think that's such a convenient number, right? Like it's so round, it's so specific, it's a big number. I just think it can't possibly be true. You've got to do like this, it's just like, do you know, like you say, it's an arbitrary number. Like, and it's an arbitrary number that's is based on something non swimming related. Yes, in some cases in swimming, it's worked out brilliantly. But ultimately, if you, you know, we take chess as an example, quite a singular set of movements. And obviously, there's only a strategic certain number of things you can do within a chessboard. So, yes, if you drill somebody on those very singular controllable skills again and again and again and again and again, yes, after 10,000 hours of doing it, they're probably going to be pretty darn good at it. But like I say, if you apply that logic in a swimming pool and say, well, they've just got to swim. So we're just going to swim up and down for 10,000 hours. Well, that's great. But what happens when they walk out in front of 20,000 people and no one's ever talked to them around managing their emotions? Or six months before the Olympic Games, one of their family members passes away and no one's talked to them about family support or understanding that actually there are other factors that impact on them. You know, they, they genetically, they've got weak hamstrings. I don't know. And they've never understood the physiology of what they're doing and gone, oh, my hamstrings actually feel like they're not quite right. And then suddenly they go ping and they injure them and they're out of the water for two months because no one's ever taught them that actually understanding that if your hamstrings feel tight, when you turn up on poolside, your self-check should include that and you need to be doing some stretching to alleviate that. So again, I think it, it comes back to this kind of thing we've talked about quite a few times today. Actually, it's it's so much more muddy than people think it is. And like you say, it's a convenient number. And in certain contexts, that number applies. And in swimming for certain people, that number applies. But there's probably just as many people that it doesn't apply to. So I think, again, it comes back to everyone trying to be painted with the same brush. Okay, so just to, just to summarise the, the end of the podcast, Kevin, I always ask, uh the guests for their kind of top three tips for a specific topic so kevin today we're asking you for your top three tips for people looking to develop talented individuals okay so first one is around open-mindedness and i think open-mindedness is both athletes and coaches to understand that we all walk our own paths sometimes that confies should work on my english there defies the convention and actually that's fine that's okay if your path doesn't mirror the person who came before you and the person who may follow you. But actually being open-minded to those sorts of things and how you learn as coaches, how you develop your athletes, I think is really, really important. So that's the first one for me. The second one is around prioritizing the person, the human being. And I think coming out of COVID, that's a huge thing for me. You know, we're going to have a mental health tidal wave hit us at some point. And I think people are almost brushing it under the carpet. And that's kind of some of the stuff I've been doing in my consultancy work now is actually saying what mechanisms, platforms, support systems are in place to make sure that coaches as well as athletes are getting good mental health support um, at all levels of the sport. So that's kind of prioritizing the person is a big one for me. And I guess the final one is it's not about you. And I think a number of your guests have said this before, understanding one, remove the ego, but two, when you get to the different touch points of the person's journey, take a moment to recognize the the part that came before it and the point they're heading to next. And I think too often you can certainly in you know the modern world, you can hear an athlete that wins an Olympic gold and that coach, oh, great job. 
It's like, yep, they took them the last five, 10 percent, which not underselling it. It's extremely hard to do that. But actually, there was a lot of other people, including family and friends and stuff that came before that. And I think we need to get a lot better at recognizing that and understanding that whatever level a kid gets to, even if it's the county championships and they win their first medal. Oh, I've done a great job. I'm a great coach. Well, actually, the swim school that you just got them from did a great job as well. So you know, mention it, get in touch with them and say, you know, I thought you did a great job there. So I think removing the ego and understanding it's not about you is a really important thing, whatever performance level you're working at. And then I guess to pull all of those things together, just understanding, like be confident in who you are, because actually that's all of these things come back to the individual journey we go on, not just a, a generic out of the textbook kind of route. Perfect. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a, been a fantastic discussion and a hope you've got something out of it uh, as well. For sure. Really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for the invite. And that brings episode one of series four to a close on the Poolside Pass podcast. A fantastic discussion with Kevin Pickard from the Rogue Monkey talking all things talent identification and talent development and where he thinks things might be moving in terms of talent development in the future. If you like today's podcast and you want to share it amongst your network, make sure you do so. Make sure you get in touch with us on social media. We're at the Poolside Pass on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to head over to our website for all the latest things on the Poolside Pass at www.thepoolsidepass.com. And until next time, take care.